And today's sponsor is Reconciled. Reconciled invoices your clients, pays your bills, and delivers clear and accurate financial reports every month automatically. Ready to streamline your financials and prepare your business for the next big step? Visit Reconciled.com today. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. And now a moment for our sponsors. I want to highly recommend you get Acquisition Aficionado Magazine. Every month, Acquisition Aficionado Magazine brings you tactics for business buying and selling you won't find anywhere else. Learn firsthand from industry leaders who share their success stories, featuring in-depth interviews and stories from leading figures in the business acquisition industry. This multi-platform mobile magazine speaks to acquisition entrepreneurs wherever they are in the journey. And I want you to visit acquisitionaficionado.com today. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today I'm here with Daniel Sweet. He is the founder of Sweetview Partners. Thank you for uh-huh. being on the show today. <laughs> Thank you for having me, Ronald. I appreciate it. All right. So you've been on the show before, but let's just give everybody that hadn't seen that one a little bit of a recap. Who are you? Where are you from? What are you up to? Kind of your origin story here. Sure. So I run a acquisitions and operations company in Houston, Texas. So we buy Texas businesses is our big thing. I spent 27 years in technology, corporate technology before that. My first job out of college was Apple, and that was interesting. Worked for HP, IBM, Compaq, a lot of those folks, and eventually got to the point where I wanted to buy some of these businesses, really small businesses that I found that I knew people that were starting them, and then being tech guys, they got bored. They would be successful for a small company. They'd get bored and then close them down. I struggled for years with, okay, how do I get in the middle of that? So I finally started studying the acquisitions and effectively becoming a self-funded searcher, as they call it, and going after these companies. And roughly five years ago, I transitioned into doing that full-time with Sweetview Partners, going after companies in Texas. So we've done a total of, in five years, we've done a total of four or five acquisitions, depending on how you want to count. They've all been small. I get bigger every time. I started too small. I I know that. That's what I teach other people now is, listen, don't start that small. It's not going to help you go bigger. And so now we're just doing acquisitions where we don't have our own fund. So we do a raise for each one of them. So we find good, healthy companies that the owners are looking to leave and we acquire them and grow them to that the next stage. Awesome. And just companies in all of Texas, Texas, a hell of a state is it or a certain region of Texas. It's all of Texas. We, the whole, whole thing. All right. So what's the, any particular like, is it still tech or you construction or? So myself and, and my partner now, we do technology, construction, and energy because that's where our background is. Yep. And then on your advisory side where you're helping other people do this, they buy what they're looking for, right? Exactly. We'll train up other folks to do this as well. And especially for the first business, I think that's the hardest one to buy because you've got to go through the whole process once and you haven't been there. The way I put it now is there's no signposts on this journey. Start looking and uh, the feedback is the same, whether you're looking at good companies or bad companies. Mm -hmm. So you could waste a lot of time. 
once you've acquired, then you've learned a lot of lessons along the way. And then it becomes something different, especially for the first companies. I advise people to pick something in your field. You've got the expertise. It makes it a natural flow. And once you're a business owner, then you're on a different plane for everybody. It makes a lot more sense if you're going after whatever at that point. Right. So what are some, you did this from a corporate side, you've seen your buddies shutting things down. Now you're in the middle of it. What are some of the things you know now that you wish you'd have known after, uh, during that first one or two acquisitions? Well, so here's what I've learned. Most of the, and I take my lessons from me, right? So what I did was I spent a year and a half full time before I got my first company. And one of the lessons I learned there is the same thing most entrepreneurs say once they've acquired is I had an opportunity to quit my job because they had a, they were doing a reorg and had a severance and it was nice. And I was this close to closing this one company. And so I said, yeah, that'll all work. I'll do that. A year and a half later, I closed on that company. There's so much there that always takes longer than you think. So one of the first things I tell people that are new at this and looking to acquire the company is don't quit your job. It's going to take longer than you think. It's okay. You can wait it out, but don't quit your job just yet because everything takes longer. And then as we go along, again, it's learning what to concentrate on. So most of the people that do this kind of thing, like me, again, I use myself as an example. So don't take this as a pejorative. I say most people that start looking for businesses are act like a chihuahua on meth (laughs) Uh, because they're all over the place. And I was too. And what I figured out later on is bringing down that focus really makes a positive difference that you wouldn't think of. It's counterintuitive. A lot of people that start thinking, I'll look at everything. It'll be great. I had, that's exactly my, I guess my frustration with a lot of guys. I do meetups on mergers and acquisitions. I just Mm -hmm. want to meet people in the space. We do kind of hangouts. We're kind of a networking thing twice a month. We'll get 25, 30 people in there. And you ask them what their search criteria is, what they're looking for. Now, I'm looking for any business doing a million dollars in EBITDA on the planet. Like, no, you're not. And it's just my gut reaction is like, if you don't know what you're looking for, you're sure to find it. If you're looking for anything, well, here's something, right? Well, that's not a business. Well, you just told me you're looking for anything. Oh, uh, listen, I can show you all sorts of businesses if you're looking for anything. Exactly. Uh, And the problem with that is, is it's too, here's what I'm trying to say here. I think was without being mean. You have to learn these industries pretty well. So even if you don't know, like I want to be in coffee of all things, I just say that because I was looking at it for a while. I, I looked at coffee for six months before I realized I don't want to be in coffee. It matched all my, so I built a level of top criteria. That's what I tell people. And maybe you do the same thing is what are the aspects of business that you like? Well, I'm from real estate. So I want recurring revenue. I want to do something once and get paid over. And so, that. so what can I add a subscription service to or a service agreement to? Right. So how do I create work once and build a relationship with that customer and make money or provide value and make money, not just get paid ever and over and over again, but right. continue a relationship. Coffee met that. We went through, so I went through this criteria of like, here's all the stuff I'm looking for. I actually have a little spreadsheet that says, here's all the criteria. And we, I turned it into a roll-up evaluation. Like, is it good for a roll-up? It can be do anything. But I have like 20 selection criteria. And then I'd put industries across there and I would rate them from a scale from one to a hundred. Do they meet that criteria of mine? And then I'd look into who has the top five things and coffee and a few others were in that. But I'll tell you what stopped me on the coffee is the, it's a dirty industry. It's really, you really have to know that industry and you really have to, I just didn't want to deal with the politics and the, there's everything from child labor to farmers being screwed over to everything else. And you have to, it's a lot to manage, 
if you want the best prices, you almost have to go through the wholesalers. But if you don't, but if you go through them, you don't know how they're treating the other people. And I know some people in space, like I know some people who own big roasting companies. And one of them got into it because he married a woman whose parents and their whole family line owns the coffee farms in another country. And they were never treated right. He's like, I'm in the yeah. United States. I kind of look at the creative business. Why don't we bring the beans here? I'll roast them and sell them. And then we have a direct line. But uh, anyway, the selection criteria is like what aspects of business appeal to you? What are you good at? I play that game where I play the, use the Japanese uh, model Vicky guy. Have you seen that mm-hmm. one? What are you good at? What does the world need? What will they pay you for? I forgot what the other one was. But you know, you build your selection criteria, and then you figure out what industries and what businesses fit within that. So how do you get them to hone in on one? Because it's hard. People just think they think they want money. And I was like, you really don't want money. You want the things money buys you. You want the freedom of owning a business. But for a lot of these businesses that are so far out of your bailiwick, you're not getting the freedom because you're going to have a learning curve. Exactly. You don't know where those little things that will change everything are. And so, yeah. So everybody takes, including me, everybody takes these business buying courses to, to learn how to do this. And they learn a lot of great stuff. There's a lot of good stuff there. But the assumption a lot of people make, and maybe me too, is I'm going to take the course. I'm going to go from knowing nothing about this. I've done some more study, but I basically not having done it. And I'm going to become a tycoon tomorrow. And what I try to help people with is it's not really popular to say, of course, but I say, okay, there's probably stages to this, right? The first stage is getting your first company, right? That's one stage where you focus on just doing that one thing. The rest will be out there later. Don't worry about it. Get that first one first. And within that, we want to make that box real small, something you know about real well. And then we can go on to stage two, which is where we expand, open our wings a little bit. We can do a little bit more than what we did on stage one. Keep moving on to where you get to where you want to be. But like all of life, it happens in stages. And of course, everybody wants, I'm going to take a pill and I'll be there tomorrow. But well, they don't get. So I did the same thing, right? I came out of the real estate world. I wanted to do something bigger. I hired a performance coach and I was owning a real estate investment company. I was in a very tight niche in the, with a hot market. It kind of shuts down. I bought foreclosures, right? right? Market got hot. There was none around. Not enough volume we needed to do. And so... My business partner thought he could ride it out. I didn't think so. So we, I sold my shares to him and I went to do something else. But I, in, in that process, I'd be like, is it really, is the economy really, is it declining or am I getting burned out? So I hired a performance coach. And one of the things the performance coach did is say, in the middle of this, he says, you should be playing a bigger game. So I would flip a freaking house and when the business would, we'd make $30,000, $40,000 on our best flips and stuff. That money would be wired into our account and I would still hear his voice, but you should be playing a bigger game. Yep. <laughs> So when we got out of this, the bigger game was I get into apartments and stuff. Well, I've been mentoring and coaching real estate investors for a long time. And I've been, a bunch of my friends had moved up to that level. We had a high volume at the residential level. So we weren't needing to be in that until the market shifted. But do I want to go out and I'm I'm really competitive and really good at marketing. And this is a small market like Tulsa, Oklahoma. Do I really want to go out against them and like try to outmarket all my friends that are looking for the same deals or do something else? So I got into this. So I did what you talked about. I hired... I paid for one of the courses, pretty good. I still realized I didn't know stuff like I wanted to know. So I started just, I've never seen a phone number I don't like. So I started calling people like you and professionals and stuff, just asking questions. And the conversations were interesting enough when I would go back to my accountability groups and my my hangouts where I was hanging out with other mergers and acquisitions guys. They'd want more, like, tell me all about that conversation. What did you learn? And I was like, maybe I should just start recording these. So that's how I got this going. Okay. But to this day, 
I bought one before we started, but we haven't closed. Like I'm two and a half years in this. We haven't actually closed. I've come really close on some. I'm glad I turned away some of them. I've had LOI signed, lots of LOI signed. And I say that we sold, we started to roll up and we sold the the shares of that roll up to the two of our partners. Basically, they bought us out and moved on. But that wasn't like, we were still in the process. Like I didn't own the company and run it for a year or something. So I started doing the research. It takes the average search funder. Now these are guys, a lot of these guys are Harvard, like yeah. Yale, they're Ivy and they're get, they've got their master's or they're getting an MBA and stuff. It takes them two to three years to search. That's the average. And in that process, what you don't understand is that's built by design. The people funding the search are actually mentoring them to be CEO level quality. Right. right? I've interviewed a lot of these, these search fund investors and people that invest in search funds. And that's what they say. They say, look, I don't want somebody buying a business day one. They're not ready. They need to go. They need to cut their teeth on that search. They need to look at five or six businesses. They need to go through the due diligence process. They need to understand why it's a good deal and why it's not. They need to have some successes and they need to have some failures before they actually are in there running it. So what's the process look like for you? I know you've got the thing you're building right now. And let's talk about the process it takes to get from, hey, I just took a course on buying businesses. Now I want to go and buy out McDonald's and own all their franchises. Sure. <laughs> why not? Yeah. So one of the things, so I've mentored a lot of people in a lot of different places mm -hmm. doing this. And the reason I built my thing was I had people come to me and they'd say, this is an awesome deal. We should partner on this. And I would look at it and I go, this is horrible. Why do you like this? Well, they said they made this much money and they do this cool thing and blah, blah, blah. And I said, ah, uh, yeah. Okay, but their financials right here, they say they lost money every year. Oh, right, but they say they that's tax planning. <laughs> oh, oh, okay, that's fine. If they can point out where that profit is hiding, I'm good for it, but no. So one of the things that we're training people as we go along is we train them. So like you're talking about, you don't do the due diligence yourself and, and neither do I, but I trained myself up during that year and a half on enough knowledge and accounting principles and all that so that I could look at a P&L and I could flip through there and say, okay, this doesn't make sense. It exactly. doesn't give me answers. It gives me questions. Right. You need to and develop that thick skin BS meters. I call it. Yeah. Something's not right here. So. And so the more I saw, the more I could analyze mm -hmm. quickly. And so that's what one of the things that I work with these folks on is how to read all the financials. And again, some of them is just an easy no. You look at the financials and go, absolutely not. There is nothing redeeming here. I don't care what you tell me. It's a no. But the other, the ones that aren't definite no's, the great thing about learning just the basic skills there is you learn what to expect. And when you see enough, you say something strange about this. And so it just leads you to new questions. It doesn't, again, not answers, but you can say, yeah, I remember you told me that each of the owners was making like 150 grand. And I've got a line here that says officer's salaries is 60K a year total. Tell me about that. Uh, and they said, well, I mean, it wasn't really salaries so much as it was they were paying themselves 160 grand a year. Okay, so they're doing distributions on most of it. Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. Well, now we need to back in some salaries and change your cash flow. And so simple things like that, that you learn to spot those anomalies and how to look for them. That, I mean, the skill isn't terribly difficult. I mean, obviously, I'm not a CPA or anything close to it, right? But I can read a PL and I can read a balance sheet and I know to ask for a debt schedule and those kind of things. So I can go through there and 
again, you've seen this all the time, right? Your profit in 21 <laughs> was $3 million. Your profit in 22 was $17 million. Okay, I'm going to call that an anomaly, and there's something really strange about that. Let's talk about that. Those kind of things that you learn to spot the areas to ask questions, but also the sp areas where the most common, I don't want to say deceptions, but mistakes happen. Yeah. It's like I was looking at one that had a, but first, one of the first disclosures they gave me was like, hey, we have some trouble with the IRS. And I'm like, okay, so I, that's easy to tell you. A lot of times you can look that up. There's yeah, court record. Yeah. I mean, you can, they put liens on a lot of stuff. Sure. I started looking up their liens real quick and it had $976,000 worth of IRS liens. And then I started looking at their books and I'm like, you wonder why they're doing 15 to 20, $30 million between 15, one year almost at 30, like $28 million a year in revenue. And every year they're, they're claiming they only had 15,000 to 30,000 in profit. I was like, okay, IRS audit, you, you, you failed, but they never contested it or fixed it. The books were a mess. So I looked at this like, I bet I can get that number down. Like when the IRS comes after you, they come after you and like grandiose, like this way, usually way inflated. And when you really battle that down, it's usually somewhere between what you said it was and what they say it is. And they hadn't done that expert. They were just like panicking and making a payment arrangements and trying to pay them off slowly. And the first thing I did is like, okay, I'm going to hire a forensic CPA law firm that does tax negotiations. <laughs> when that deal fell through, I was like, hey, I already kind of, we already had contacted them, given them a little money to look at what we had so far. And it's like, if we don't get that back in the way we had that set up. It's like, why don't you call her up and have her take a look at what you're doing? She's going to save you a lot of money. And then if you still want to sell it to us when you, because they, the IRS and one of the bank loans they had blocked the sale. They said they couldn't transfer assets until that was taken care of. But yeah. we got the LOI signed from them and everything. It was, one of, it was a cool deal. It was like we're a dollar down and we'd take over your debt. And I was going to bring in a team of forensic CPAs and some tax attorneys to try to fix that. Exactly. The biggest thing they did when a $13 million a year at the time was down to 13. $13 million a year concrete plant. We were looking mm -hmm. at another wow. one. Another one within 30 miles of there was doing like $6 million, but it was like a 30% profit margin. Well, my goal was to buy them both and have the guys that are running it really well step in and Run help the manage one. the one 35 miles away that wasn't doing yeah. very well. They've made complementary products too. Like mm -hmm. One of them made storm cellars and that type of stuff, and the other one made mostly culverts and industrial stuff. It was one of those, like, okay, they wouldn't even compete them, but maybe one product line. But knowing those books, I almost think there was a, there's a play for this. And unfortunately, everything I've ever collected was under NDA. Right. But I'd like to set, I think it would be a fun game to play for acquisition entrepreneurs to have like deal rooms and have like 15 of them. Lying, like one of these is not like the others. One of these is actually good. So go right. through there and like you play this game where you go through the deal room, look at these deals, you do your evaluation and tell me what you find. And then we come back and go, this is what you should have found. You exactly. Know? So that's a little bit of what we do with our thing. So we have this these three stages that, again, weed out the bad stuff. And so we tell them, at, at every stage, we tell them, present your company to us. Do a mm -hmm. little, we have a simple template. Mm -hmm. Present it to us, show us what you found, tell us what you're seeing. And then now we'll look at it and go, okay, but here's what you missed, important stuff. And what they say is they learn a ton by presenting just because they learn the company better because they know that we're going to ask a lot of questions. And they get a real good feel for it. If it was, and that's part of the goal. By the time they get to stage three in our little process, they've done a lot of analysis. I mean, they've done a ton of work on this, which means they know the company inside out pretty much. So now when you go to get lending, they can answer any questions they've got. Not only do we, we teach them how to put together a one page or that kind of thing, and, yeah. but they, whenever the lender says, I mean, I had a lender come to me once on one of my deals and they said, yeah, credit said this and that. And I said, 
no, that's not true. Let here, here's the PNL. Let me show you. And I yeah. could show them exactly where what they were saying was inaccurate and where it all fell out. And mm-hmm. I said, Oh, okay. I mean, this is a this was a bank. They brought it yeah. back to their credit people and said, Yeah, you got it wrong. There's a skill to that, right? When I had the real estate investment firm, we did foreclosures and short sale negotiations, and we learned so well what the banks required. Every single bank. We knew that if you were bank of I don't know. We didn't do Bank of America. We'll use them. We didn't like them. So they didn't like us. And they wouldn't allow us to do deals. But uh, uh-huh. we'll say, we knew if you were this bank, like say Bank of America, you needed exactly these 50 pages of documents to turn in right. to do this transaction. So we would create packages for every single one of the files and we'd just go with day one. We'd mm-hmm. be faxing 50 because there were still, all, all these banks were still using faxes. Not, very few of them had a, a secure method, like like a secure email, but most of them were just faxes. So we'd fax the stupid documents to them and they'd call us two days later, like, or we call them and say, hey, where are we at on this transaction? Oh, we're still waiting for this document. No, you're not. That's on page five. Oh, no, no. We're waiting on this. That's on page 17. And uh, But you're doing that with these loan process. Like, I know enough that what the bank's going to ask for when they call and ask for it. Like, okay, no, that's right here. So that's a brilliant thing to do because what happens in a lot of these deals is the reason they take so long to close is they, they need something to make take the next step forward and nobody's managing the process. So you don't right. know they're waiting for something for you because they're waiting three days to call you and tell you they need it. They just haven't got around to call you and go, hey, I'm looking for X, Y, and Z. You're on the list there so, somewhere. Yeah. And banks are horrible a lot. Of. We had guys, their whole job was to call the bank and say, where are we at on the process and what do you need? Yeah. Oh, we're doing good. Cool. We don't need anything. Cool. What's your next step? And they say, okay, the next step's this one. If you, the next step's that, then you need this. So it was just one of those, we had to project manage and nudge them ahead. And yeah. I think the same thing happens when these loan processes, like, okay, where are we at and what do you need? What's your next step? Okay. When's that done by? And I think that's, I mean, I think that's why I kind of fell into this mm-hmm. um, and enjoyed it is because, I mean, part of what I did in my world in technology was project management. I've managed projects on a global scale. You've got offices in all different time zones with all different cultures and mm-hmm. some different languages. And you've got to wrangle all those cats together to do something for you that they don't really want to do in the first place. It's a much more contained scope of this project management. That's what I like about it. So in, in your program at this stage, I like to walk things through yeah, yeah. systematically. So in this stage, somebody's like, I'm one of your guys. I come in, you help me develop my investment thesis. Like that's a fancy word for what am I looking for, right? I start bringing industries in front of you. You show me how to analyze them. I present to you. I try to show you what I find in my analysis. You help me learn things I missed. What's the next logical step on that? We find one that we both agree on? Effectively, yeah. So there's two focuses, foci to mm-hmm. our program. One is the technical skills mm-hmm. and one is the relational skills. Uh-huh. And so we're kind of constantly teaching both those at the same time as we move through the process. So we're doing real world stuff. And as much as I don't like, as much as I don't like using brokers on my deals, I encourage them through this training to use brokers because they're going to see a lot of deals. And so we, we teach them a little bit and, but every week that we teach them something mm-hmm. and then there's hands-on coaching, they have an assignment that week too. So they go out and put it into practice. They learn it and use it, which mm-hmm. in my technical background, that's how to make it stick best. And so then they take what they've put together and they, then they present that and say, okay, here's what I've got. And we work with them through that and say, okay, well, you know, either here's what you missed or you're doing good. But at each stage, we give them a go or no go. If it's a no go, you can still move forward if you want. It's our contention that you're going to be wasting your time and the questions get harder. But if it's a go, then you move on to the next stage and you collect this new information. And while you're collecting information, you're building that relationship and you're talking to people and you get the feel for them and they get to feel for you. So we're doing a teaching on the technical and the relational level at each stage. And so they're learning while they're doing and they get a good idea. The middle of the 
there's an intensive structure right now to the course that we teach. The middle gets really frustrating because they're getting good enough at this to be able to kind of churn through companies. Right. So now they're churning through companies and they're going, well, I mean, I can't find a good one. I said, yes. Okay. That's the lesson to learn is there aren't a lot of really good companies out there. Once you learn that lesson and can start applying it well, now we can go outside of the broker range a little bit and get to other things, other methods of deal flow and that kind of stuff. But until you learn that lesson, you're going to waste whatever it is, you're, whatever efforts you're doing in deal flow. Because if you can't evaluate them, it's no different than the bad ones. What makes a company not a good company? So there's a lot of things. One of the main things I teach from the beginning is we build a future-paced cash flow. So here's what the business is doing cash flow today. Even if from the very early stages, we'll just take their word for it, right? Here's what they say. Here's the cash flow. Now, what changes do you have to make? Just the big ones. What's that going to cost you? Let's net that out. Let's come out with a end profit first year. Here's what it's going to look like. Is that profit enough for you to do this process? And usually they start with these companies going, look, it's got half a billion dollars of profit. No big deal. And so we churn through it and churn through it and churn through it. And then they come out with this number that goes, oh, that sucks. Exactly. So what it's really going to provide to you end of the day, that's one mm -hmm. of them. I don't know how many business owners I've talked to who probably dozens who have said, I bought a company and it was doing a million and a half a year, found I had to have four extra executives. I didn't make any money for the first two years, right? Like we had to live on my wife's salary for the first 14, 16 months. It is not uncommon for you to buy, like if you don't go what you're going through and you don't look at that future cash flows and expenses required and stuff. And these grandiose ideas and changes you think you're going to make when you walk in that door, they cost money. Yeah, all of them. <laughs> right. And chances are the guy that you just replaced didn't tell you he was wearing four hats and you don't want to wear four hats. And now you got to have three extra employees at 80 to 120 grand a pop. A million bucks gets eaten up pretty quick when you're starting to replace, you know, the VP leaves and he was doing two jobs. Now you were, you only want to do one or two jobs. And so now you've got six jobs between two people that left. You yep. got to go hire four people, right? Five people. So now you got from an early stage, we'll do an estimate of price of the business, just rough mm -hmm. estimate, right? Based on averages in the industry, if they haven't given you one. Mm -hmm. And so then we do three different financial models for how we would fund that potentially. Mm -hmm. And what they notice is, boy, all that profit disappears with that debt load. Yes. So the money in and the money out is one of the biggest ones that eliminates companies. But then you get kind of deeper into the weeds and you're kind of see how they, as you go along, how they generate their money. Is it replicable? Is it growable? Are all the relationships with the owner? How are you going to transition those? Who are, by the stage three, we start to ask, who are you, the acquirer, going to have operate that? And if the answer is, I don't know, then you're not going to buy this thing if it's not you. Because you can argue with me all day long that you can find an operator, but you're not going to argue with the lenders. They're going to want to see who's going to run this thing oh, if it's not the current owner and it's not you. So we go through those types of things to figure out and if it's a good company or not. People don't understand that executive search can take anywhere from a few months, six months to 18 months, and it costs 
tens of thousands, not hundreds of thousands of dollars, exactly. right? To do, it. especially if you like, everybody's gonna try it on their own because we're entrepreneurs. And we think we can do everything on our own. And four right. months into it, you're like, I'm gonna have to have an executive search firm do this. They're gonna want a retainer up front and a piece of the transaction on the back. It's not cheap. That's one reason that we buy in the state of Texas mm -hmm. is because our networks in these industries are good. So we're usually not going to a search firm. We're doing a search of our network. Right. But we're not going to search firm. We've got somebody in mind to run that thing yeah. by the time we get to LOI. So one of my favorite things to suggest, and we had this lined up for that concrete plant, is to find somebody who has done it before. They've been an operator. They've actually grown a company. Maybe not the exact same industry, but he had a, it was another manufacturing company that built industrial stuff. And he took it from 10 million to over a hundred million dollars. And he was already searching. He was already out on his own. He, he had some money to put into a business. He wanted to buy it. And our goal was we were going to sell the CEO seat, basically make him buy in and sure. do a, what we refer to as a, I think you and I call it a buy or whatever. It's buy in, buy out, mm -hmm. buy in. They helps you grow it. hits a certain point. And when we're going to sell the company at a certain multiple five years down the road, he has the opportunity to buy us out of that multiple and own the rest of it. Or he just rides with us. He runs it until then. When we sell, he gets, he can cash out too. It's his call. And he's got skin in the game. So this guy, particularly guy had 300K. We probably are going to do ask for like a 200K for 25% or whatever the number was going to be. Now he's got skin in the game. He owns a piece of the company and he's the operator. He's a general manager, the CEO, mm -hmm. or what do you want to call it? But there are people out there where they're out there searching. They have the money down and they just don't know how to find deals. Right. right? That's the biggest challenge. Yeah. So uh, if you find something, you could pair up with one of those guys and just do a thing where, look, I'll negotiate it. I'll get it done on whatever you go in and you run it. You're the operator. You run this thing. Mm -hmm. You grow it. You do what you do best. And at the end, we'll either sell it to you or we'll sell it out and both of us will profit. And today's sponsor is Reconciled. Are you an entrepreneur or business owner thinking about your exit strategy? Or maybe you've just landed a business through acquisition and the books just aren't the way you need them to be. Let me tell you about Reconciled, your dedicated partner for industry-leading virtual bookkeeping and accounting services. Reconciled pairs you with skilled professionals who empower you to grow your business and prepare for success, whether that's your exit or taking that new acquisition to top performance. Imagine having high-level financial management without expanding your team. From bookkeeping to CFO services, tax advisory, and even fully outsourced accounting, Reconciled has got you covered. They help you make the best business decisions, keeping your end goal in mind. And the best part? Reconciled understands acquisitions. If they have acquired three accounting firms in the past three years, and their founder, Michael Lee, mentors others in searching for acquisition, raising capital, or trying to aggressively scale. Reconcile invoices your clients, pays your bills, and delivers clear and accurate financial reports every month automatically. Ready to streamline your financials and prepare your business for the next big step? Visit Reconcile.com today and let them get your books in order. Reconciled, making bookkeeping a breeze. That's Reconcile.com. Yeah. We have a standard uh, corporate agreement that we put into any company we buy that just lays out how we value it. So if anybody wants to buy anybody out, the argument that always happens doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. It's already been determined how you're going to value it. So then you just determine, okay, do you have the money? Do you not have the money? Buy us out. Sure. So yeah, that's a big argument stopper. So we try to put some stuff in our standard corporate agreement that are mm -hmm. argument stoppers before we get started because we've made enough mistakes to see a lot of the arguments. So the other one I like to do, and I'm bouncing these off you because I want to be called out if I'm wrong. For full <laughs> disclosure, I met you. You were one of the coaches at one of the programs I paid for. Like, I know you know this stuff inside and out, and I'm learning from you. And I, I do this show to learn. 
But one of the other things I like to tell people is, I think it was two weeks ago on one of our networking, he goes, hey, I've got one. We're talking. We're good. I'm ready to cut an LOI to this guy. Like, does anybody have a template for an LOI? I said, you're ready for an LOI? He says, like, yeah, cool. Is the guy married? You know, I don't know if he's married. And I was like, does he have kids? Like, no. I don't know. What is he doing after the retirement? When he sells you the business, what is he doing next? And he says, I don't know. I said, you're not ready for an LOI. I said, why? Right. Because they won't close. If you don't know what they're doing next and have them know where their mindset is and helping them get there, there's a good chance that, you know, they won't close. I caught one of my guests off guard because he has a website I was interested in on my content sites. And after the, right after the call, I go, would you sell that? And he's like, yeah, I probably would for the right price. So cool. I'll schedule a call with you. And he's like, his eyes got big because he didn't realize I was serious. Right. So right. Then that Monday we have our call and he was like, I have to decide if this is a core part of my business or a distraction now, because once I make that call. I'll make the decision whether or not I'll sell it to you. But a lot of times people, they built this, their ego's tied to it. They're involved with it. And if you don't understand where they're at mentally, and the other reason I wanted to know if he was married, because my favorite question is, what does your wife do for the business? You'll find out a lot of times that like they're doing bookkeeping or one of the businesses I found out later, not only was the wife doing bookkeeping and not charging anything, I didn't see an accountant on the book. So I had some questions. I build a little org chart, like what positions are supposed to be there. And then I figure out who's doing those roles. Like, who's doing your accounting? Because I don't see anybody in your work track you gave me. I don't see anybody says accountant. <laughs> oh, my wife comes in on nights and weekends. Like, cool. How many hours does she spend? Right? So I need a full-time person or a part-time person to replace. I got to add that salary back. And then they don't put that in there. The better one was, is this is a manufacturer. The lady that was doing the accounting, her and her husband came in and they did the deep janitorial work every week. And I'm not okay. doing that. Right? <laughs> and the guy I was helping like look at it, he's not going to do that. Like, so, okay, you got to add a little bit of janitorial service. So the shop floor did, for safety reasons, did their own sweep up and stuff on the shop floor. Mm -hmm. But the vacuum, the office, to carry out the trash, they came in on every Saturday and spent half the day cleaning the place. I know that's only a few bucks a year or whatever, but it's not still. Somebody needs to do that. And there was just all little things like that. A lot of people, you don't realize how much they just do out of nature. It's something they've always done. They did it when it was a two-person company and then just it was, fell into habit and they never hired anybody to do, do it otherwise. Yeah, it's, I mean, entrepreneur slash owner equals do that job plus whatever else doesn't get done. And when they get used to doing the other stuff, they don't tell anybody about that. So, so that's going like, to be another person. He told me he was ready for an LOI, and the guy was like, I said, well, is it a single member? I said, well, what's the corporate structure? And he said, it's an LLC. Oh, cool. A single-person LLC or does somebody else own shares? Well, I know his wife's on it. I said, cool, what percentage? Like Probably five, at least five because it's multi-member. You at least give them five most times. Right. But it could be more. It could be 50-50. Now, if, you said, if it's anything more than 2 or 3%, are you going to leave? Is she going to continue owning hers, or have you had a conversation with her? Are they still together? Because he didn't know. Anyway, it's just one of those. There's just certain questions before you. But I think a lot of that stuff is just simple stuff you do when you're building rapport that needs to be done before you even do an LOI. Well, right. Well, I mean, you're just increasing the chance of the LOI failing, which is already greater than 50% between LOI and close. Well, my maybe I'm wrong here. But when in my mind, once we sign the LOI, I start spending money. I start yeah. paying for due diligence. I start paying for maybe a little bit of, maybe with just time, because I'm a marketing guy by nature, market analysis, deeper market analysis, like what's the game plan? What am I going to do with this different? What synergies are with other businesses I own? Or you know, what am I going to do with it? There's time there. A lot more time than I'd probably spent up to this point is now we're getting serious and I got to focus on this for a little bit. So there's opportunity cost too. Now I got to not do some of the other stuff I do to focus on this until we get to get it to the finish line. So uh, I'm pretty serious. I don't give LOI. Like a lot of people, everybody gets an offer. Like I don't give LOIs unless I'm getting ready to pay for, you know, I'm willing to stroke that $25,000 check to do full due, due diligence. Then we do an LOI. Yes. And we've had people 
do our thing. They're ready to, I'm ready. This is a great company. I'm ready. I said, let's just put it through the stage one, the simple stage one. We've got a checklist. Here's the information and look at what we, what comes out. And most of the time they would go through stage one and go, well, I don't have that information. Okay. You are absolutely not ready for an LOI. This is not ready. Like the other one is, what states are they operating in? Why does that matter? And because your due diligence cost shoots up big time when you start telling some attorney who has to do due diligence on liability issues and HR issues and everything else, they went remote and now they have employees sitting in six states. Right. And they got to pay employment tax in six states. And, yeah, they, pay employment. and they have rule. to comply to six states, different rules, right? Yeah. Two of them sit in California. If you see the rules here, it's crazy, right? Like as a single person LLC, I have to have one hour a year safety training. I have to sit there and talk to myself for an hour, theoretically, to be in compliance. So let's talk about the rest of the process. I really want people to get the idea. If somebody works with you and they do your zero to LOI course, what are they getting out of it? What are they going to, besides just, okay, I got an LOI done at the end of the course, what skills are they going to pick up along the way? So the skills they pick up are the skills, like I said, both behavioral and technical skills to actually work with the sellers, work with the brokers if they're existing, as well as analyze the data they get back, whether that comes through a broker or not. So one of the big skills they get is the ability to know if a deal is good or bad early. So we're giving them back a ton of time. But the key is, like I said, just like me, most of the people that do this work are really high performing professionals, generally speaking. And so chihuahuas on meth, absolutely all day long. (laughs) And so what happens is we want to jump ahead 20 steps because that's how we've gotten ahead. Well, this is something you got to kind of do step by step because you got to know each piece. So a lot of what we do is we help them make it explicitly step by step. Just this step to this week is just this step. And then an assignment for that step next week, different step, new assignment. So we make sure that they're doing it step by step so that they're able to, by the end, they're able to do a lot of that faster, although Mm -hmm. not blow by it because they understand the value of it by that point. Additionally, what they get is a lot of handholding. So there's not a lot of signposts along this journey, as I say. Mm. And so what we do is we're work, we've got instruction that happens every week. Usually that's me. We have coaching in a group that happens every week where we're making sure everybody's got the lesson, is applying it, understands what it is, the nuance, and gets into doing the assignments. And then we have one-on-one coaching where we're making sure that the thing you're doing is the right thing. And you're about to get X information from certain person this way. And our coach can say one-on-one, hey, well, how about we redirect that just like this? And you go this way. So we're working with them as they're going. So they're learning the stuff, but we're also able to give that feedback as we go to say, well, you're going to have more success if you do this at this stage. So they get, we're kind of calling it an apprenticeship because we're walking along with you on this whole journey. And so instead of learning lessons like I did by full time, a year and a half of trial and failure, and then figuring out where I failed and then going back to that video or buying a book or whatever, we walk along with you to help you be successful, as successful as quickly as possible on that first deal. Now, we also help you be realistic. A lot of people come into what we do saying, yeah, in about three months, I'm going to have a company. I'm going to be smoking cigars, lighting them with, with my dollar bills. That might not be quite accurate and then bring out your stats for funded searchers, guys that do this for a living that are working under companies that do this for a living. Two years is not unusual. I think we can get there 12 to 15, 12 to 18 months 
of consistent effort, but it's not unusual that they're going to take that long. And so we help them reset. And again, think bigger, just like you were talking about. If you're going to make this major career change into buying businesses, and that's what you're going to do from here on out, you have to put a little time into it. I mean, if I were to go from technology to what law, I would Mm -hmm. have to go to law school. I'd have to put a little time into that. This is kind of that. It's designed so that you're learning while doing so we can both keep the knowledge and practice the motions. When you're in golf, you can practice that swing, same swing 20 times, but if it's the wrong swing, you've just built in the wrong swing. So we help you build in the right motions as we go to get you to that first company as quickly, first good company, as quickly as is reasonable and sustainable. I mean, that's what a lot of it is. We help give those signals and signposts that say, okay, yes, good. Okay, next time avoid this. Before you do that, do this. That helps them along that path faster. I mean, you get to learn from other people. So what what elements of this do they need to do themselves and what elements of this can they actually... Like I'm a big believer in the who, not how. I'd outsource brushing my teeth every day if I could get somebody to show up to my house and be on time and do what they need to do. That said, some of the stuff you need to build a BS meter on, you need to do the... Even if you later on have somebody like a forensic accountant just looking over your stuff or you have an accountant friend that looks over the financials for you. My gut says you better know enough of it that you look at it first. Cause if they miss something, it's not on them. They're not, especially if you're doing SBA like that, like that yeah. they're not the ones with personal guarantees out. You are. Right. And a lot of people, well, the SBA is going to, SBA is not going to write a bad loan. I was like, yeah, don't be realistic. If you're like, just say, here's a good example. SBA is more interested in it is, and the lender is more interested in is their butt covered. Right. If you have $5 million worth of real estate assets and you personal guarantee them, they're going to be a lot lenient, more lenient on you when you buy a $2 million company. And exactly. they're not going to, I mean, be honest, they're just not going to do the level of due diligence you think they're going to do. They're going to do their loan underwriting and stuff like that, but okay. it's not what you should be doing because they know if they don't pay or if you fail, they're going to come get your real estate. And exactly. people don't get that. They don't get that. There's a risk reward thing and all they're doing is covering the risk. If you got fewer assets and the personal guarantee is less valuable, yeah, they're going to spend a little more time scrutinizing your business because it's all, their loan is riding on that. Exactly. Most of the lenders are absolutely going to be looking at the business first. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm just saying, you can't count on, like a lot of people say, well, if I do umbrella coverage, they do their own diligence too. So if I get an SBA loan with an umbrella coverage, I'm pretty much covered on that. You got to remember those guys are doing, it's exactly what they need to do to cover their own butt, not yours. I believe in outsourcing everything I can, but I also believe I need to do some of this stuff myself, especially in the beginning. Like right now, I'm looking at tech sites and stuff like that. I don't do the evaluation of them. I know what SEM rush is. I know what the tools are. I know all this right. stuff. I could buy subscriptions on it. But the guys that do the evaluation on the tech stack for, for a, a buying, say, a, an e-commerce or website, let's just say it's under a million dollars a year in profit. They charge two or three grand to do that. And they right. do it within days. And they give you like... For an extra 500 bucks, I'll say, here's the low-hanging fruits to double your revenue. They know this space. They can just, and they got tools to do it. They, they look at dozens a day. Yeah, I'll eventually learn how to do that. But right now, I'm just like handing it over because like I get a better answer from them. But I want to like, I'm going to pay a little extra the first time. And I already negotiated with them. It's like, hey, the first two or three times we do this, I'm going to have a lot of questions. I don't want right. just the report. I want to understand where did you get this from the report? What does it mean? Right. So that I can glance at some of the stuff in the beginning before I actually hand it to you. That's exactly right. And we have we have a lot of people at our course that come in and say, listen, I'm going to automate the heck out of this. And I say, that's great. But you have to know what you're automating before you automate it. Otherwise, right. how do you know if it worked? If you don't know 
how to do a lot of this stuff yourself. Not the in-depth stuff, obviously. But if you don't know how to do a lot of this stuff yourself, you're not going to be able to, if you hire a VA, how do you know if they're doing a good job? So that's kind of what we're doing is getting the basics down. You know how to do it now. And then by the time you learn it, well, okay, now I can piece this off to a VA. I can piece this off to my tech analyst. You can start doing all of that because you know what to expect back. You know what they're doing and you know if they're doing a good or bad job, which is kind of important. It's Yeah, I've never liked that. Like the idea of sending something off. If you don't know what you're looking at when they give it back to you, you just, if all you're doing is shrugging your shoulders and they said it was good, that's just dangerous. You need to be able to look at it and go, that's exactly what I wanted done. And yes, it's good or not. I think I'll be one of the things, the low hanging fruit, I think, for what's coming around the world right now is AI. And I think the financial due diligence, I think AI will be able to crawl through that pretty quickly here. Probably in the next six months, minimum, I mean, like the, the shortest period of time, I don't think it'll be happening in the next six months. Somebody will have some betas out in the next six months or so. And I think in the next 12 to 18 months, you'll be able to like load your deal room up into some tool and it'll crawl through there and go, hey, here's some questions you need to look at, right? Yeah, I, and, talked, to, I talked, in fact, to some startup guys at a Ivy League that are just looking for advice that are building kind of version one of that kind of tool. Yeah, yeah. It, the technology is there. Nobody's done it. Like nobody's put the built the data set around it. And I jokingly say accounting's an artist's work. You can line five, 15 painters up by the ocean here. I live by the ocean and say, paint me this sunset and make sure they can't see each other's work. And you're going to get 13 of them look different. There's going to be right. one or two that look like the others, but they're all going to interpret it differently. And accounting's that way. There's a set of rules and everybody can interpret them the way they want. Sometimes they're actually wrong. Like a lot of these right. even paid accountants, CPAs will get it wrong. But sometimes if they're right, they just did it differently. And you got to align that with how do you want it done? And what does it look like when you do it your way? Does it still make sense? Right. Mm-hmm. So that's where I think it'll take a little while. And AI would probably be more suited for it because it can look at all those multiple cases like, okay, here's the law. Here's how it's supposed to be done. Here's the normal business practices. These are all okay. And maybe these are gray. Here's some real red flags you probably should look at. And you load your deal room up and three seconds later, it comes up and goes, this one's pretty clean. You should take a deeper look or, Hey, this yeah. one's got about 15 red flags. You need to figure out what this is, why this line is there. They say they have 15 employees and we only see four on the payroll. It, it would be able to find that stuff. Like I actually seen this one. One of the companies had 65 employees on payroll. And every time I talked to them, they said, well, we only have 50 employees here, 51 now. I just looked at your like I looked at your payroll. I looked at your accounting. You gave me your accounting sheet. Do you know you have a bunch of people on payroll that you say aren't there? Well, three of those left and they have two weeks around front. They had some answers for from them. Yeah. They had four people they've been paying for over six months that were gone. So <laughs> one of them was kind of imper- – so it's one of those family things, right? One of yeah. them was a courtesy thing. Somebody had died and like they're still paying – they're still paying them, like, we're going to pay them for six months. They yeah. died of cancer or something horrible. But the, the company was being nice, like, we're going to continue to give the widow. Like, we're going to keep doing direct deposit for about six sure. months, and then then we can't do that no more. But it was a small-town family office type of thing. Right. But there was just – there was a bunch of them on there. They're thinking, okay, that one's there. Now we got four more left. Where are the other four? Like, who are they? They actually asked me, like, who are they? Like, all right, you probably should go get that money back. I don't know if you can or not, but, you know. Somebody- uh, it would be tough. Employment law, it's really tough to get it back. Yeah. But uh, it reminds me of the the office, right? Where they moved the guy to the basement and then they fired him and he was still paying him a long time after they fired him or whatever. And I was thinking, like, I didn't really think that really happened. But, you know, so we've walked through the process. I want to go circle back around to your what you're doing there. They've got their they've got everything down. They've started presenting deals. They found something that's good. They're ready to issue an LOI. Do you guys help them look at, okay, is this 
SBA worthy. You're going to have to raise outside money. You actually have like, what does a deal structure look like? Do you help them help them formulate what will go into the LI and what the structure is going to look like? What is the seller going to carry back? What are you going to do on a loan? Where the money coming from? All that stuff. Yeah. So that's where the intensive instruction piece ends as we teach them about the LOI, what needs to go in there and how we're going to structure it and what makes sense for what types of deals. Can you buy a company where the number one customer is 63% of the business? You can, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to put 63% of that on earnout over several years. And as long as that company keeps using us, we're great. But if they fall off tomorrow, no. Things like that, yeah, that will help walk through with them to get that LOI structured well. And then they'll transition into due diligence, which is we're not teaching how to do due diligence. We help them. Okay, these are the areas you need to do due diligence in, and we'll know some providers, but we don't teach how to do due diligence in the course, but we'll get them to that point. I know, I can't say of his name because I'm, I'm about to share with you. One of the guys was on the show, bought a company. They were doing really well when he bought it. Two of his biggest clients, probably 30% of his business, were only stick, it was a manufacturing company, they were building something big. The product had declined. It had some problems, you know, over the quality of product had dropped over the last probably six months to 12 months. Two of his biggest clients were only hanging around out of loyalties to the previous owner, knowing that he eventually fix it. Right. And he was having medical issues that his wife was kind of running things right now that if he got well or whatever, he was going to come in and fix this problem. So they were hanging around out of trust and respect of the previous owner. The second it changed hands, they were like, we're leaving, right? So he had to go fly. And then they were overseas too. So he had to fly out to them, fix their machine, their machines he had built for them, rebuild those relationships. I think he saved them or at least one of them. I remember him saying he saved one of them, but I don't know what actually happened to the other, or I don't remember what happened to the other. But uh, there's a big thing about that, right? When you say like 60% of the customers or 60% of revenue comes from one customer, one, will they stay around? And two, if they do leave, is that a viable business anymore? I don't want to touch anything. If they leave, it's not a viable business. If they leave and it hurts, that's fine. We can still make payroll. We can still go hunt new customers down. The business will survive. It'll suck, but it'll survive. Right. So, okay, maybe we can still move forward with your earnout, right? And then can I talk to that client? Like before we close, can I talk to them? Can you help me introduce, introduce to me? Can we figure out if it, you can almost, at least I can, and I'm sure you have enough yeah. rapport building skills right now. You have an hour or 30 minutes to an hour conversation with somebody. You go, okay, I'm this is guy. I can trust him. I think I can work with him. You get that gut feel to move forward. I don't think I would touch anything that had a 60 something percent client where I haven't met that client yet. The other thing you want to see, I get on the phone. I want to see a Zoom call. I want to see them, right? If I'm close, I want to go shake their hand. But if I'm if I'm like here in California, they're in Texas or something like that, let's get on a Zoom call. Let me see you. The only thing I want to do is like, if you look like you're 75 years old too, who's taking over your, like I'm going to buy exactly. this a year later. Your buddy just retired. You two want to go on your new fishing boat. He just got a big check. He bought a boat. He didn't be offering to take you out every few weeks there in Houston. He didn't take you out in the coast. You don't want to work anymore either. So now my biggest client that's getting 60% of my intake is out fishing with my previous owner instead of running his business. Right. There's some things you got to look at inside of these things. It's like, okay, who is this? Are they going to stay around? Are they going to long-term relationship with me? Less important. It's still kind of important, but it's less important if you've got a really even keel across all the clients. You get one or two major players in there. you got to know everything you can about that. One more quick one. One of the guys that we looked at, good business. They were overworking, meaning they were putting in way too many hours. But when I asked him, finally, was the straw that broke the camel's back, I was like, cool, how did you land all your clients? 
well, I'm a pro golfer. And I was like, okay. <laughs> what do you mean you're a pro golfer? He goes, well, I'm, I'm a local, like the training pro for two of the local golf courses. People pay me for lessons there. So I take all the other, he did auto detailing and window tinting. He takes mm-hmm. all them out and gives them free lessons and sells them on his business. He's doing millions, tinting windows and detailing cars and installing right. aftermarket radios. And he was doing six, seven million dollars a year. But it's because he had those relationships, right? And I didn't have what it would take to maintain those relationships. So eventually that would fade off. So you got to look at like, how did they get their clients? Why did they come around? What is that relationship they have? And can you maintain that? Again, creative deal structure. You can make part of the payment. Listen, you spend on average 20 hours with each one of these guys. <laughs> part of the deal that I'm getting with this company is I need 10 new clients a year for the next three years. So that's going to be 600 hours of your time over the next three years as part of the deal I get. So how do people find out about you? How do people connect to you? How do people learn about the course? Is there a website they can go look at your, what did you call it? Zero to LOI? Is what you Zero call to it? LOI, right. So it's designed specific. I mean, everybody can benefit, but it's designed yeah. specifically for your first acquisition and it's spelled out zero to LOI.com. You'll have a link. I'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah. There will be, you can email me if you need any questions. Mm-hmm. Dsuite at sweetviewpartners.com. Glad to talk to you. And the website is sweetviewpartners.com. Any of those, find me on LinkedIn. I'll be glad to talk to you there. Glad to talk to everybody. So the other side of this is, is this in person or are you on Zoom? Can people be remote out? Do they have to be in Texas or can you train anybody? <laughs> the course is delivered via Zoom. So absolutely, they can be anywhere. We actually had a couple takers from outside the US. It doesn't work nearly as well because a lot of our information is very US centric. But within the US, you can be anywhere. Cool. And what would be U.S. centric? Because probably the preparing for the SBA would definitely be one. Certainly, uh, the lending, uh, a the lot lending of the rules around acquisitions. Yeah, man, the Europe has a really cool thing where they call that uh, you can crawl through their own database and see who's solvent, who's not, and all their and then their books are actually fairly accurate because they have to report them. I think it's called Company's House or something like that. That's the only thing I wish we'd. I think it would be beneficial in the U.S. if more small corporations had to at least report their numbers clearer or cleaner. I appreciate you. Glad to have you on the show today. And I think we'll call that a show. Sounds good. Thank you, Ronald. I really appreciate it. Hey, it's your host, Ronald Skelton. I want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline, 918-641-4150. That's 918-641-4150. Call us and tell us about our show. Ask questions. Uh, suggest a guest or even tell me about a business you have for sale and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918-641-4150. Call our hotline, leave us some information. Thank you. I want to announce our new channel partners, the ITX Marketplace. Since 1998, ITX has created $5 billion in value by selling more than 225 IT businesses in 20 countries. ITX works exclusively with IT-enabled businesses generating between $5 million and $30 million who are ready to be sold and M&A decision makers who are ready to buy. For over 25 years, ITX has developed industry knowledge that helps determine whether a seller is a good fit for their buyers before making the match. ITX Mergers and Acquisition Marketplace, we have partnered with, has a proprietary database of 50,000 plus global buyers seeking IT service firms, managed service providers, Microsoft service providers, software as a service platforms, and channel partners with Microsoft, Oracle, ServiceNow, and and the Salesforce space. If you have an IT-enabled business, you're ready to sell, I want you to visit the ITExchangeNet.com slash marketplace. 
how to exit. That link will be in the show notes. Visit them now.